So as we think about Psalm 119e, if I can turn your attention to the third stanza of 119e, because it actually summarizes pretty well today's sermon. So in stanza three, it says, Turn now my eyes from vanity, and cause me in your ways to tread. O let me, or let, oh, let your servants prove your word, and thus to godly fear be led. We will see something like this in Samson, another Adam to come, who sees good fruits, or what he thinks is good fruits, filled by the Spirit, yet fails. And the psalmist is asking, is pleading, bring somebody who sees this fruit, says no, and says yes to righteousness. And we'll see a picture of this in Samson. So if you can turn to Judges chapter 13, we will read the first 24 verses. We're not going to read everything. So Judges chapter 13, verses 1 through 24. And I know Judges 13 ends at verse 25, but there's a reason we're stopping at 24. So Judges chapter 13, verses 1 through 24. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be called a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For the child should be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah rose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. 
And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that, when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goats with the grain offering and offered on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you that your word has proven true, that you throughout salvation history, throughout redemptive history, have grown your seed. You have not left us without your promise. And we see your promise today in your son, Jesus Christ. May his name be proclaimed from these scriptures. Samson pointing us to Christ. Pray that our hearts are opened Our minds are alert. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. So growing up in sports, in a very competitive school district, I was used to competitive kids. I was also used to competitive kids with far more competitive parents. Kids I played against kids I went to school with were groomed from a very young age to be the best, go get into the best colleges, get the scholarship, land the highest paying job possible. Yet it was not the kids who really wanted this, but their parents. You've likely seen this, or if you're honest with yourself, you are that parent. As hard as it is to admit, you feel like you have failed to accomplish all you wanted to accomplish in your life. And your kid is kind of your second chance. So you groom your kids from a young age. You groom them to accomplish all that you couldn't accomplish in your life. You secretly live through them. And with Olympic season in full swing... I'm sure there's many examples of this within the ranks of each sport. And coming into the next school year, I'm sure also various kids feel this pressure from their parents to perform at the highest level possible. Yet they don't realize it is for their parents. And the parents, of whom I'm sure you know of some, or you might feel a little burdened that this is you, push the kids, yet inevitably when the kid 
fails to perform, become the star of their team, get the scholarship, fulfill what you feel like you lack, they hear it from you. You had so much potential. Why did you throw it away? And coming to the text this morning, you might think something similar, although I know it's not precisely the same, is happening with Samson, his parents, and the angel of the Lord. So you can ask, do they have some high aspiration for Samson that he completely fails? Does the spirit which continually comes upon Samson just fail to do its work? It bends the will of Samson's self-worship, and in chapter 14, eyesight for the beautiful. And if you call from last week, you heard about the raising of Jephthah. After the most idolatrous description of Israel's apostasy from the Lord in chapter 10. As well as the dedication of his daughter to temple service. His only begotten virgin, you can also say spotless seed, that Jephthah promises if the Lord delivers the Israelites from the oppression of the Ammonites. This week you'll hear the birth narrative of Samson, as well in chapter 14 of his first temptation. And this temptation bears a striking resemblance to the birth narrative and testing of the true and ultimate Savior, Jesus Christ. And to get there, we will follow the flow of this test, shaped as it is by the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. So point one, the promise. Verses one through seven of chapter 13. After the Israelites return to their idolatrous worship, without a hint of crying out for deliverance, another angel comes to a woman with a promise of another seed. And then point two, the preparation. Verses 8 through 20. The conditions of this seed are laid out. And the true recognition of this divine messenger is discovered. And then point three, the promised. Verses 21 to 25. The deliverer marked from birth is born. With his immediate testing to follow in verse 1 of chapter 14. As I hope you hear in the structure of this sermon. And even in the text itself. There is something vastly different between Samson and every judge previously. He's given a divine mandate or mission from the beginning. And yet, though Samson concisely and consistently fails by judging according to what is right in his own eyes, you will hear that in Christ you have the deliverer raised by the same spirits from the womb, who does not fail the test in front of him, but truly obeys and does what is right in God's eyes, both perfectly and continually. So as we dive into this text, keep those fundamentals in your mind. 
As this is crucial to understand Samson and his role within redemptive history. The history which is shaped and points to Christ. So first point, the promise, verses 1 through 7. So if you look at this text, to begin with, we have the same formula that you've been pointed to after the death of each judge over Israel, when verse 1 states, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. However, something is missing between this verse and what follows. Do you know what it is? They don't cry out to the Lord. The silence is deafening. They have fallen so far that this apostasy, this false worship, has become normal and natural. And in verse 2, you hear of a, quote, barren woman with no children. Much like Jephthah's daughter, a virgin, hence no children, the issue of a seed comes up again. And the theme of barrenness picks up the same word used from Sarai in Genesis 11, verse 30, which uses nearly the same language with Abraham. On a very practical level, they need a seed to continue their line. So what happens next? Verse 3 is quite surprising. When it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now, it's no great mystery to this couple that they're barren. They don't need to be told this by an angel, that they're barren and childless. But you hear, which is why the angel speaks, this line repeated by the angel Lord to Mary in the Gospel of Luke Chapter 1, verse 31, when it says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Conditions are then laid upon the mother in verse 4. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, which is odd. Why? The answer is connected with verse 5. When it says, For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So this Nazarite vow, generally speaking, was voluntary and temporary. It was not something placed on somebody else. This is laid out in number 6, verses 1 through 21, right before the blessing passage, or passage from Aaron. This vow, though, is placed by a messenger onto the woman and her son. Because this son is to be a Nazarite from the womb, the woman must also keep these conditions. And the seed is marked as a deliverer from birth. 
not called out like every other judge previously in the midst of his life. It is almost certain that Matthew in his gospel pulls this verse, pulls from this verse, when he writes in Matthew 2, verse 23, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarite. The messenger also states that this seed to come shall begin to save Israel. This seed will begin what David accomplishes earthly and temporarily in 2 Samuel 5, and Christ eternally and perfectly. Also, like Hebrews 7's analysis of Genesis 14, describing how the lack of Melchizedek's heritage points to Christ's birth without human seed, you get this implied here. Though it is rightly assumed that this was done naturally, the lack of Manoah knowing his wife here points to a seed to come without use of normal human relations. And the verses 6 to 7 have the woman reporting this information back to her husband. The promise has been given, and she goes and tells her husband, we have a kid coming. So continuing the theme of a seed to come, which will come and finally bring Israel out from under oppression, now by the Philistines, this unique narrative points to an entirely different type of deliverer, one not called in the middle of his life, but at the very conception. And that brings the point to the preparation. And the stipulation of a Nazarite vow placed both on the woman and the seed to come are now realized not to be coming from a mere angel, but it looks like from the Lord himself. In verse 8, the husband is reintroduced after the wife explains the nature of this promise. And he is asking for more even after the messenger visits with his wife and gives the promise of the seed. If you think about it, doesn't he already have all the information he needs? It's far too easy to look at Manoah and scoff at him, saying, how could you ask for more when the glorious presence of the messenger has already promised you a child who will begin the process of saving Israel from her oppressors? But it's no difference from you. You have the final revelation of God in your laps right now or on your phone. You know how things will work out in the end. And yet the latest news story or the setback at work or the wayward child, the gossipy group, has you questioning everything all over again. It's like the Olympics again. Imagine you already know who wins every gold, silver, and bronze medal. The drama of the games is still exhilarating. And there are moments you wonder, what if? So with Manoah, this pilgrimage is still hard. 
even with every piece of the revelation, you need to live this life to the glory of God. And it's remarkable that God condescends to his level as he does to yours and answers him in verse 9. Yet almost comically, he doesn't appear to Manoah, but to his wife again. The messenger appears to the woman, and she rushes back to her husband. And when she rushes back to her husband, in verse 11, it says, And Manoah rose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And they said, I am. Did you catch that? Are you the man? Manoah probably assumes a prophet of some sort. He will learn this is no mortal man. This is evidence in verse 12. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life, and what is his mission? Prophets were known by the perfection of their predictions. Manoah is making sure of this. And more focused on the Canaanite oppression over Israel, Manoah is seeking, according to one commentator, quotes, this pronouncement concerning the crises caused by the Canaanite oppression. Basically, guidance on how this deliverance will occur through this seed. Again, almost like the messenger sidesteps Manoah's question. He reiterates what he should have asked by telling, talking to the woman in verses 13 and 14. The messenger just repeats the Nazarite vow that is being placed upon the woman because of the seed within her. Then in verse 15, Manoah decides to prepare a feast for this messenger, using an almost identical tactic to what Gideon uses in Judges 6. This occurs in Judges 6 right before Gideon tears down the altar to Baal and the Asherah. Though Manoah won't be doing the tearing down, his seed will. Though odd at first, verse 16 actually helps Manoah identify who he's speaking with. When it says, And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. And the author talks to you specifically when it says, For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Manoah asked this because he's unclear of the identity of the messenger. And the messenger corrects it by describing the burnt offering. This is only and exclusively made to the Lord himself. This, then, is a messenger from the Lord himself. No mere prophet. Verse 17 continues the questioning of Manoah, looking for a name of the messenger 
of the Lord. You can contrast this with the woman because she doesn't even ask him for the name. Much like what Moses asks for a name of the one sending him to deliver them from Egyptian slavery. And though the messenger does not give his name, he gives something better in verse 18. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So he's not just saying wonderful in some great sense, but a highly charged signal for the Lord. Psalm 139.6 and Isaiah, 6, or Isaiah 9.6, the famous one concerning the Emmanuel child, God with us, speak about this name directly. The first speaks about God the Father, and the second about God the Son. In verse 19, the name is repeated again, yet added with a reference to the Exodus accounts. So we read in verse 19. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered on the rock of the Lord to the one who works wonders, and Manoah and his wife were watching. Now you hear the identification that the messenger makes in verse 18. This is the pre-incarnate son. The son before his incarnation. Before he takes on human flesh. To further identify the messenger of the Lord, you move to verse 20. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar... The angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. That's not what you expect to occur after this. This messenger, who stood in space and time, so, so an entity similar to Manoah and his wife, now goes up in the flame of the sacrifice. And what does Manoah and his wife do? They fell on their faces to the ground. The universal phrase for worship, which you do only and exclusively to the Lord. The seed which is promised the woman is promised by the Lord. So the author begins with a brief account of Israel's complete idolatry, moves to the entirely unique birth narrative of the seed, and continues with identifying the messenger with the Lord himself. The couple has been prepared. The promise has been set. And so now we're waiting. Who's going to come and begin the salvation of Israel? Which brings to the last point, the promised. Verses 21 to 25. Verses 21 to 23 conclude this unique birth narrative when it says, The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. 
But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such great things as these. The author is summarizing this narrative. He's restating that Manoah knew this was a messenger of the Lord. Again, probably a better translation than angel. And Manoah's response is appropriate in verse 22. Much like Gideon's response in Judges 6, verse 22. And the Lord's own warning to Moses in Exodus 33 when he says, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see it and live. Further evidencing that this narrative was between Manoah and his wife and the Lord in the visible form of a man. And his wife's response in verse 23 is also appropriate. That even with their lack of complete faith, the promise given still stands. The seed will come to begin this deliverance. And this deliverance begins in verse 24. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. The promise is fulfilled, the wife bears a son, and the Lord blesses him for the first time in the book of Judges. In Judges chapter 5, verse 2 and 9, Deborah's song contains a blessing to the Lord. And now, the Lord blesses Samson. Lastly, in verse 25, And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him in Mahanadan, between Zorah and Eshtaol. The Spirit stirs in Samson even before his ministry begins. And this is significant, especially with Judges 14, verse 1 in view, which you should read together. The chapter divisions can sometimes be unfortunate for reading these stories as a unified whole. So if you can, real quick, go to the first gospel, Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. First gospel, first book in the New Testament. We'll read Matthew 3, just two verses, 16 and 17. Again, Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And you read, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And continued... In chapter 4, verse 1, what happens? Very next verse. That Jesus was led up by the spirits into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. If you turn right back to Judges 14, if you had your finger on Judges 14, right after chapter 13, verse 25, when the spirit stirs in Samson, What happens in Judges 14, verse 1? 
Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. So you can say Samson goes into the wilderness, Canaanite territory, and is tempted with the sweet fruits of a likely beautiful woman. Samson, the spiritful judge, is tempted and he fails. Throughout chapter 14, you hear two more episodes of the same spirit rushing upon Samson. The first in verses 6 to 9, when Samson rips the lion and eats, foreshadowing Israel's deliverance from Canaanite oppression, and a second, a previous deliverance, in verse 19. So you can ask, is Samson the failed child, the one given incredible amounts of strength to accomplish God's will, yet failing? Yes and no. He's a sinful human being who violates his vow. Whether or not he knows it, we're never told explicitly. Yet the Spirit of the Lord continues to work through him for the deliverance of Israel from Canaanite hands. So though Samson vested with the spirits, even after consistently breaking his Nazarite vow, and brought up from birth as a deliverer to begin Israel's salvation, you hear the consistent parallels of a seed to come, who is full of the Spirit, never breaks his vow, completely delivers his people, and is not defiled by what he touched, but purifies it. Because Samson is defiled. Did you catch all the parallels in Samson's birth narrative. In Judges 13, you get the most extensive accounts of the bringing up of the deliverer, the one whom the messenger of the Lord promises to a barren woman, like Sarai in Genesis 11, consecrates the very beginning of his life, is vested with the spirits at the end of the birth narrative, and tested from chapters 14 to 16. So though Samson constantly fails, the Spirit continually works through him towards the deliverance of Israel. The promise of the seed works towards deliverance, which the ultimate seed accomplished. Jesus Christ, who was given, truly given the spirits without measure, who was the fullness of the Godhead, which dwells bodily, when tempted, as Samson was, as reported in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, after his commissioning by the spirits, did not buckle, but endured it to the end for you. Samson points to the judge, whom you know, who eternally divine entered human history at the moment of his birth who took the failure of Samson's obedience and obeyed the will of his father, your father, perfectly. Israel had, as you have, perpetuated this cycle of sin and crying out to the Lord. If you, again, like Israel, have fallen so deeply into sin, 
that you cannot seem to find a way out. You know the Lord, yet there are patterns in your life that you cannot seem to break. You know that the Lord sent his son for you. You feel like a failure, and you bring nothing to the table but your sin. Christ is your Savior. He did not wait for you to get your act back together before dusting you off and walking with you, but he's with you even now. Jesus obeyed where you and Samson never obeyed. And he did it perfectly. Place your trust in him. And what you see contrasted in Samson, it is deviling his vow and falling into temptation, is fulfilled in Christ's perfect obedience. To give you the spirit guaranteeing you that his obedience is yours. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for showing us your son, even amidst of absolute failure. Of though we feel, and rightly so, that we have failed. Just like Samson, who is supposed to deliver and consistently fails, yet the Spirit continually works through him to point us to the truly Spirit-filled judge who took us out from our slavery to sin and gave us his righteousness. I pray that we see your gospel clearly in Samson. Samson points us, contrasts us to Christ. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. So as you heard, hopefully in this sermon, we can respond with gratitude that the obedience of the righteous one has been given to you, the ones who have disobeyed so consistently, even though you are filled with the Spirit, just as Samson was. So let's respond with gratitude with number 268 in your Psalters. So let us stand again, number 268 in your Psalters. Let us